Over and over again, in his first letter to us, Peter has stressed the importance of being what we claim to be. He refers to Christians as children of God, as being born again, as a royal priesthood and a holy nation, as a brotherhood and as bond slaves of God, among other things. The underlying purpose for so describing us is that he wants us to act like children of God, to truly behave as if we've been born again and are growing up into new creations, that we function as a priesthood and a holy nation, that we recognize we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we actually obey like bond slaves of God. In short, we need to be what we claim to be. We need to make sure that our faith doesn't simply remain in our heart, but that it finds expression in everything that we do. That our relationship with Christ affects all of life. Now, Peter has specifically pointed out how our relationship with Christ should affect our relationship to those in authority over us, whether the civil authorities or our employers. And he has spelled out how Christ should affect our relationships in the home, especially between husband and wife. Again, everything we do in life should be affected by our relationship with Christ. Our plans and priorities and projects should all be examined in light of his revealed will for us. Not only is that essential for our own fulfillment and happiness, experiencing life in harmony with our Creator, but the life we live is crucial to our witness. We have an obligation to live life in such a way that others will actually see Christ living in us. And that gives a sense of mission to everything we do in life. We've got to live lives that reflect Christ. Having said that, however, we must also recognize that our witness cannot be totally silent. There's no way that our life can adequately communicate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those around us should be able to see the results of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in our life, but they're going to have to know the facts before they can respond to his love and experience the new life that we have found in him. There comes a time... When a spoken word is necessary for understanding, for communicating the facts of the gospel. So a positive witness must be both nonverbal and verbal. One is incomplete without the other. The most eloquent evangelist in the world is a poor witness for Christ if his life isn't consistent with his message. But a model life can lead no one to Christ unless they understand why you live 
the way you do. Our witness, therefore, must be a balanced witness, one that can be seen and heard. But even then, our witness may not be welcomed. There is evil in the world. And even if we do everything right, conflict between good and evil is inevitable. For Peter noted in his quote from Psalm 34 last week, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There is conflict between good and evil. But still, in spite of the dangers involved in being a witness for Christ, even a witness who strives to live out their faith as well as share it, we must be witnesses for Christ. And if we are to be the best possible witnesses for Christ, we must sanctify him, share him, and show him to others. Peter puts it this way. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. The first step to being a good witness for Christ is the need to sanctify him. And no one can be an effective witness unless Christ is truly Lord of their life. We've discussed that many times. But Peter puts it a little differently. He tells us to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Now, we understand that to sanctify is to set apart. So what he's saying is that we must set Christ apart from everything else in our life. That he must reign supreme in our life. To be an effective witness, our life must be dominated by the desire to do what our Lord wants us to do. To do that which is good. In Peter's words, we must be zealous for what is good. We must be doing things that people can recognize as being good. And what is good? I think Micah says it best. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? If we take advantage of no one, show kindness to everyone, and walk humbly with our God, People will notice. 
And when given the opportunity to speak, they might be willing to listen. We do, however, live in a day when it seems that everybody is out to sell us something. If we're going to survive, we've got to build up defenses to salesmen, conmen, and crusaders who are out to win us over. And those same defenses are going to be at work when we try to convince someone that we've got something they need. So how do we win them to Christ? We begin by letting them see the good that Christ is doing through us. Now, even those who are antagonistic to the gospel and to what they see as organized religion might let their defenses down if they can see that we are zealous for what is good. And those who would openly fight us and attempt to forcefully silence us might back off if they see really good things coming from our life and our teaching. But even if they don't back off, we have no need to fear their intimidation, not if we've made Christ Lord of our life. Even if we should suffer for doing what's right, Peter says, we'll be blessed. And even if we lose our life for our faith, we'll be blessed eternally, just sooner than expected. Now, not many of us are afraid for our life because we're Christians, at least not here in this nation. Most of us are merely afraid of what others might think. Well, the initial recipients of Peter's letter were risking their life for their faith. But still he told them to sanctify Christ as Lord in their hearts and that there was no need to fear or even be troubled. He was actually quoting from Isaiah when he said, Do not fear and do not be troubled. Isaiah was called upon to prophesy at a time when Judah was in decline spiritually and morally. And his message wasn't popular. It sounds so contemporary. While Uzziah was king, he wasn't too fearful. Uzziah respected him as a prophet and, to some degree at least, sought God's will for the nation. But when Uzziah died and Ahaz, his son, was given full control, apparently Isaiah panicked for himself and for the nation. At least he did so until God gave him a vision that's recorded for us in the sixth chapter of his prophecy. It begins, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Even though the situation looked grim, God was still on his throne. There was no need to fear intimidation or to even be troubled. And Peter's message to us who feel intimidated about doing what we know to be right and making our life into a positive witness for our Lord, is that God is still on the throne. So sanctify Christ as Lord and do what he says. But we can't stop there. Peter goes on to say, always being ready to make a defense to everyone 
who ask you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Not only do we sanctify him, we share him. Notice that Peter said, we should be ready to make a defense, not that we should always be on the offense when witnessing. I'm afraid sometimes we're like the barber who became convinced that he needed to share Christ with others. And he determined that on Saturday he would share Christ with someone who came into his shop. Throughout the day, opportunities arose, and yet he froze, unable to say anything. Tension kept building within him because he knew he had to say something. And when the last customer came in for a shave, he thought, this is the one. He prepared himself mentally. He wound up his courage. He lathered the man's face, got out his razor, began to strop it. He walked around in front of the man and with a voice quavering and hand shaking said, Brother, are you prepared to die? <laughs> Obviously, the guy ran out the door screaming. <laughs> you know, all too often when we force the issue, our attempts at evangelism end up in similar shambles. I think when Peter told us to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us, he recognized that the best opportunity for verbal witness comes when someone asks a question. And if Christ is really Lord of our life and we're zealous for what's good, people will ask questions. In fact, the Holy Spirit may have convicted them that there's something that they need to know, and that's why they're asking. So we must be prepared to answer when questions are asked. Peter says, be ready. That means we must have thought things through. We should understand what God has done and what he is doing. We need to know the basic facts that led to our conversion. And we should be able to point to the scriptures where we found answers to our questions. We should not, however, be paralyzed by the fear that we don't know enough to share with someone or be afraid that we'll forget what to say when the moment comes. We must never forget that the Holy Spirit will help us. You know, Jesus trained the twelve extensively. He taught them. He shared with them his heart and life. He was equipping them for the most important mission on earth, but he didn't keep drilling them. He didn't feel it was necessary for them to memorize answers to, to every possible question that might be asked, as I was taught to do in evangelism training 50 years ago. He didn't write a manual on evangelism and have them practice converting one another. In fact, he said, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
their lives are on the line before hostile authorities. And yet Jesus said, don't be anxious about what to say. If we have thought about it beforehand and know what the Bible has to say, surely we can trust that the Holy Spirit will give us the answer when someone asks us about the hope we have. And do notice that it's the hope we have personally. We're not called upon to defend the doctrines of our church, to defend the faith, but our faith. It's not a theological debate to which we are called, but a simple sharing of the hope we have, what it is that has changed us and made us zealous for good works. And Peter says our answer is to be given with gentleness and reverence. We've got to respect the feelings and beliefs of those who are asking about our faith, and we need to recognize that it will probably take time for what we're saying to make sense to them. It's not our place to drive someone to their knees by cutting them down. Only the Holy Spirit can convict someone of sin and their need to repent. So that's not our job. The message we bear is to be good news. We are to share the hope, the promise that we have. They can figure out for themselves the results of rejecting such an offer. Finally, we're to show him by living with a good conscience. You know, I'm afraid that many fail to witness because they're ashamed of their lifestyle. Or they are harboring feelings and attitudes that they know are inconsistent with their faith. We cringe when we hear of someone making a comment similar to Nietzsche's when he said, if you looked more redeemed... I might listen to you about your Redeemer. Indeed, a clear conscience is vital to a good witness. But how do we get that clear conscience? Obviously, one way to have a clear conscience, a good conscience, is to do nothing wrong. And that should be our goal. But I'm afraid not too many of us are going to achieve that kind of perfection so there must be another way. And the other way is to openly confess that you are a sinner. The story is told of a woman who had gotten into one of the worst arguments ever with her husband. She was enraged and was storming around the house, swearing under her breath. She went to the kitchen <laughs> and opened every cabinet door, and then went back and slammed them one by one. <laughs> when she walked by the screen door, she saw standing there an awestruck neighbor with a cup of sugar in her hand. <laughs> she had been trying to lead this woman to Christ for two years. Horrified, she invited her in, apologized, admitted her weakness, and told of her Lord who always forgives. The neighbor made a commitment to Christ that day 
because of her honesty. You know, most often it's not our failures that disqualify us. It's our dishonesty. Our tendency to cover up. We're not called to hide our faults from one another or the world. We're called to show Christ and his forgiveness to the world. Now, we're not to flaunt our sin or take lightly the grace of God, but when we do sin, we should not try to cover it up. If we do, it will only fester and destroy our good conscience and destroy our witness. You know, while it can be used to excuse bad behavior, the bumper sticker is right. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Our job is to show the world a Savior who wants to forgive them. And we can, if we'll sanctify him, share him, and show him to a world and a nation that needs him. Obviously, if you haven't sanctified him as Lord of your heart, that's the place to start. If your heart hasn't been cleansed of false gods and ungodly desires, now is the time to ask him to search your heart and cleanse it so you can give it to him.